Hello. Hey, how are we doing? Hey, I am doing okay. We're recovering from our annual gingerbread housemaking party. This is our 17th annual party, and it was great. Gingerbread houses were made. Cookies were decorated. We had lots and lots of people come through our open house and got to see people, have great conversation, and lots of fun. So Christmas has arrived at our household. That's awesome. Yeah. How are you? I am doing pretty good. It has been a whirlwind of a week. Uh, My son got in an accident for the first time. And so, uh, yeah, that's sad. The car was totaled, but he is 100% okay. He was shaken up, but totally fine. It was really a low speed collision that just hit the car, right? Mm. Uh, Several people have said to me, you know, they make cars so that the cars fold up more now than they used to so that you don't. Yeah. And I think that that's correct. And so it's it's a little easier to total a car today than it was 40 years ago. And so he's fine, but we've had to do a lot of driving him around while trying to find him a new car. And just yesterday, we finally got him a new car. The insurance money has come through. We found a car for the amount the insurance was giving us, which is approximately what we paid for our previous car. So we are all set. We just have to do one trip to the Registry of Motor Vehicles uh, sometime next week, and we are done and can move on. Well, way to go in getting that tackled so quickly and being able to move on so quickly. That is a major inconvenience, but the speed with which you guys were able to whip through that is pretty impressive. Yeah, I think it's just because we were incentivized. Uh, (laughs) Sure. You know, there's a lot of things. He's got work this weekend. And unless I want to be rolling back and forth his work while trying to judge at a speech and debate tournament for my daughter, I don't think that I have time to not have him have a car. Yeah. But my main takeaway is, oh, you're a critiquer of speech. I wonder how you're going to respond to my co-hosting of this podcast throughout the rest of this episode. Um, yeah, no, I will be very judgmental because that's my that's my job. Yeah, I yeah. ship it, ship it, ship it, ship it, and that's what I think <laughs> about speech. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, well, what's on your mind today? You know, I have been dying to have a conversation with you, and. As you mentioned, I think in our last podcast episode, nobody listens to our holiday episodes. And so (laughs) they're the moments we get to do whatever we want. Yes. Uh, And so this is a little off brand for us, but uh, months and months ago, you urged my family to watch The West Wing. Yes. And... Even though it has been off air for many, many, many years, I thought it could never be too late for a reaction episode to (laughs) what I have to agree is one of the great TV shows of all time, The West Wing. Uh, Yes. Okay. Well, I would put it up there as one of the greatest shows of all time as well, but I have to have this major, major caveat, which is... I don't really like TV, and so I don't watch a lot of TV shows. So I think any TV show that like captures my attention must be the greatest on earth because 
Honestly, I don't watch a lot of them. So to contextualize then, what are some other shows you like? Okay, so this is dumb because when I watch TV, I just want to kind of veg out. So I actually watch a lot of quote-unquote reality TV or competition shows. Like, I really like Lego Masters because I like what Mm -hmm. they can do to build those Legos. And I really like just having kind of brain candy to watch that is, you know, here's what it is. Like, I want brain candy but I don't want the moral quandary of what I'm watching. So I don't like some of those shows like Jerry Springer or those kinds of things that some people would call reality TV or Jersey Shores or whatever it is. Like Those just have enough questionable components in there that I don't get to relax because I feel like there's something I shouldn't be watching in there. And so I get all stressed out or feeling guilty or whatever. So it's just not even fun. Yeah. So it's something that is just pure and simple and easy, like Lego Masters. I'll totally dig that. But this is one of the better, like, highbrow things that I'll watch. And I think I'm drawn to West Wing because of its really intelligent dialogue and the fact that it's just jam packed full of dialogue. You have to, like, hang on every word because huge major concepts are boiled down into like one sentence and you really just have to follow the show. Yeah, hundred percent. So I have seen the entire show from pilot to finale and I have rewatched most of it a second time and some of the early seasons a third time because when I like something, I really like it. Same, um, same. I, I don't have any middle ground, but You're absolutely right. The dialogue is so sharp. As a matter of fact, I will not let my children walk in the room and talk if this is what's on. Oh, no. They have to ask me to pause because like a three-second dialogue, anything could happen and it is probably wildly important. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. You cannot be interrupted watching this show. You have to rewind if so. Mm -hmm. And it is Currently, the only place I know you can watch it is on HBO Max, which we actually have solely for The West Wing. It'll (laughs) probably cancel soon because I don't know how many times I can rewatch it. Yeah, yeah. But the forward, backward, rewind, whatever, aren't the greatest on HBO Max. I just got to say, I Mm. do not like the interface. But that aside, so you like it because it's intelligent. Uh, What else do you like about this? Because this was like your show for years that I have now (laughs) co-opted. Well, yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to find out what you like about it as well, because I mean, obviously I recommended it, but I want to know whether you like it for the same reasons I do. But anyway, uh, so yes, I love it because it's intelligent, but I also love it because it has heart. I think one reviewer that I read about it said that it's earnest, and I really think that Mm. that word captures it. This is an earnest show. They portray government functionaries earnestly trying to do what's right for the country. Now, even if I disagree with the policies and practices that they ultimately argue for on the show— And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. You cannot deny 
their earnestness. And I really like the sense of moral conviction and the sense of earnestness that they use throughout the entire show. Some people might take it as a self-important kind of a show and that the writers or the director or whatever were kind of self-important. Sure, if you want to take it that direction, I, I can I get it. But I just really appreciated the fact that they took the issues seriously. They were willing to articulate most issues from a balanced perspective and that they were willing to argue for a side in all honesty because it was their moral conviction that that was the right thing to do. I really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. Earnest is such a good word for this show. Yeah. So there is this great scene. There are a million great scenes. As a matter of fact, I have a YouTube list of great scenes <laughs> that we can share at some point if you just want to go watch some highlights. But one character in the show that I appreciate because they use her as a foil, she is the one Republican in the Democratic White House. Ainsley Hayes. And Ainsley Hayes. Like probably five of my favorite moments are with Ainsley because there are so many clever moments. Like there are several scenes where she speaks in iambic pentameter. <laughs> uh, and I just think that's brilliant because for her character, that's what happens when she gets anxious. She speaks in iambic pentameter. And so that's just wonderful. But she is not presented as a stupid Republican. Oh, those dumb Republicans. She is presented as a very intelligent Republican. As a matter of fact, the intro scene with her is her absolutely trouncing one of the main characters in a debate. Yeah. And then she is offered a job at the White House. And the scene where she is interviewing for that job is my favorite dialogue scene. It is probably the fastest piece of dialogue in, in the show that I can think of. And it's just brilliant. But then at the very end of the episode where she gets hired, she sits down with her Republican friends. And they're like, oh, those stupid people in the White House. Rah, 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 rah. And she says, you know what? Call them misguided Call them whatever, but don't call them stupid. Like they are good people who are trying to do their best. Yeah. And I love the fact that not only A, is this true, the show dreams of a world in which the people who have these jobs have these jobs because they want to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And I find that incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. You said dreams of a world as if we don't live in that world. And, you know, based on all of the news cycles that we see, I don't think we do live in that world right now. But it does yeah. make me wonder how many people in government actually do want to live in that world and try to live in that world. But to live in that world doesn't make news. You know, mm -hmm. you're not going to see tonight on the five o'clock news, someone debates policy intelligently, right? Exactly. And these backroom meetings where people earnestly argue out genuine debates in policy and genuine disagreements over which direction the country should go in. We're never going to see that. And we're never going to know that it exists. 
And those people who want to fight for that, I think, are really overshadowed, period, but particularly in today's atmosphere. We just never hear about them. And I want to know who they are. I would like for them to step forward, please, because I would really like to vote for you and ensure that your brand of thinking in politics gets pushed forward. I don't care what side you're on. I just care that you care earnestly and debate honestly and want to do what's right for the country. Yeah. Well, and the other piece of this, and this is the piece that to me stands out, is there is an overall sense of courtesy on the show amongst the best of both sides. Mm, yeah. It is clearly assumed that the better you are, whether Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, you will appreciate the excellent on the other side more than the mediocre on your own side mm. because you value the excellence that they represent, even if you disagree with their positions. Yeah. Well, that was highlighted for me in some episodes that I rewatched last night. So I knew you wanted to talk about this. You had sent me your YouTube playlist, but I also went back and just watched a couple of episodes and I happened upon an episode where Jed Bartlett's daughter, Zoe, gets kidnapped and mm. he chooses to enact the 25th Amendment and step down temporarily as president, even though he had no vice president at the time because he had gotten ousted in a sex scandal. So the Speaker of the House is who becomes president. And it happens that the Speaker of the House at that moment was a Republican. And so a Democratic president chooses to temporarily hand over the presidency to a Republican in the name of doing the right thing for the country while they tried to potentially negotiate with terrorists over the release of the president's daughter. You know, some of the president's people were worried that this is going to send the wrong message and that there's going to be political implications and whatever. And ultimately, what both sides end up learning is no, doing the honorable thing is such a good showing for our country. But then you not only see that the president has done the honorable thing, but the Speaker of the House, who had to resign his position in the Senate in, or in the House in order to take on the job, also acts honorably in his temporary stay in the presidency and ultimately departs with his head held high and completely hands the government back to the president at the end. It's so good. It's so just to watch both sides do the honorable thing. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. You walk away from that series of episodes just going, wow, that is awesome. Both sides did exactly what they were supposed to do. Absolutely. Well, and the whole, that series of episodes, if I remember correctly, I have not seen those recently. There is an ongoing intentional buildup of the tension. Are they going to do the honorable thing? Right. Yes. Because you're, they're always on the precipice of doing what's best for the party or what's best for the country. And in the end, they do what's best for the country. And it ends up being politically expedient to do the honorable thing because it builds political capital. Yeah. Which, I mean, I hate to acknowledge that it's politically expedient to do the honorable thing. I think you should just do the honorable thing for the honorable reasons. But at the end of the day, if people do the honorable thing for whatever reason, that I guess I can live with that. 
Well, and I like living in a world that is designed such that it is expedient to do the honorable thing. Mm, That says something about the design of the world that I value. And I think presenting that in fiction like this is an invitation. And this is one of the things I love. I think that is an invitation to think higher and better thoughts in the real world. Yeah. You know, there is a good news underneath this show that the world can be better than we think, especially in this an era of deep and profound cynicism to say, hey, we can have hope here. This can be good. I actually think, and this is one of the things that's fascinating to me, when does entertainment make the world a better place? And I think that in its own way, the West Wing makes the world a better place by offering us a vision of what could be that is worth hoping towards and working towards. Yeah, I have often said if Jed Bartlett ran for president, I would vote for him. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people have. And even if I don't, I mean, and I don't agree with everything that he stands for on the show, but he stands for honor and principle and earnestness and... I would vote for those things. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this, I think this clip was in the list that I sent to you, but the high watermark of the series, I think, is the beginning of season two, these two episodes where there was a shooting, Josh Lyman is in the hospital, and they're flashing back to how everybody gets onto Bartlett's political team. And there is this moment where he's in this tiny, he, Bartlett, is in this tiny little venue talking to like maybe 30 or 40 people. And somebody says, hey, why did you do what you did? Because that really financially cost me a lot of money that you voted for this particular bill. And he looks him in the eye and he says, yeah, I hosed you. And here's why. Hmm. No politicalness, no spin, just, yeah, I absolutely hosed you. It was because I value this other thing, I would absolutely do it again. And if you take offense at that and don't want to vote for me, it's totally okay. Well, I love how those really hard decision points really come through on the show. And in the episodes I was rewatching last night about Zoe being kidnapped, the whole reason she's been kidnapped is in retribution for a political assassination that the president ultimately ordered and did covertly. And his wife is only finding out about it through the news, kind of after the fact. And she's just angry. One, that he would mm-hmm. he would do something like that. And two, that it results in direct harm to their family. And she just can't forgive him for it. And the moral quandary that he had to have been in comes through so strongly Like, what do you do? Do you order the execution of this terrorist that you know is causing destruction across the world, but you're essentially acting as judge, jury, and executioner? Or do you take some other course of action? And so obviously we have a moral problem with this judge, jury, and executioner, but we also don't have the president's job. And so I really appreciate the moral wrestling that they do on the show 
and just mm-hmm. articulate how tough of a job that is without answering the question, did he do the right thing or didn't he? Yeah, it's never black and white, is it? Do you remember the episode where he could have pardoned somebody that was on death row? Ooh, only slightly. So the through line of the episode is that somebody is on death row and going to be executed and at the beginning of the episode, it's 36 hours. Oh, yeah. And the and priest gets involved. and Yeah. Oh, yes. And the end scene, after President Bartlett has wrestled with it the whole time he's been aware, because they didn't expect this to happen. They thought that the sentence was going to be commuted. But now he can pardon anybody he wants to. But it is an intervention in the justice system that he disagrees with to pardon this person, but he also passionately disagrees with the death penalty. And so he's stuck and he ultimately flies in his like local priest that he grew up with. And he has to sit there as the minute ticks by and the guy is put to death, deeply disagreeing with the fact that he's put to death, knowing that he could do something about it, but not believing that he should do something about it, even though everybody's telling him he should do something about it. And like the next words out of the priest's mouth are, Mr. President, do you want me to take your confession now? Hmm. This acknowledgement that no matter what he did, his hands were going to be dirty, that the buck genuinely stopped with him He did what he thought was best, and even in doing what he thought was best, he still did wrong, because every option was a wrong. Yeah. And I love that the show is willing to just dive into those issues and acknowledge the no good option. And I think that's something that's missing from our public discourse on politics. Everybody wants to just trash the bad decisions. But oftentimes Mm -hmm. there isn't a good decision to be made and you're just going to get trashed for whatever decision you make. And I don't think we Mm -hmm. acknowledge that very often. It doesn't matter what side, just the impossibility of making a choice. Or sometimes these policy issues don't have good solutions attached to them. And so that's why nothing ever gets done is because like, legitimately, what would get done? Like, what should we do to actually solve this problem? And so I wish the public discourse were as honest as those shows are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like going back to this, the episode where, or the series of episodes where Zoe gets kidnapped because of this, frankly, this murder that the administration requires and then covers up, they have this tiny window to assassinate this guy. If they assassinate him, they are doing something that's morally reprehensible. If they don't, he is assured to commit hundreds, if not thousands of murders in the next year. Like he had just tried to blow up the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. And through the whole episode, Bartlett's like, no, there's no way I'm going to order an assassination. There's no way we're doing this nonsense cloak and dagger stuff. And then when it comes right down to it, it feels gross, but he has to do it. And you're right. He felt like there was no right answer. And I wonder how often our political leadership is stuck in that situation where there is no good answer. And we just have to respect the fact that they are in the chair and we are not. Right. 
Well, that's exactly how I feel about Truman's decision to drop the bomb. He had to face, Mm -hmm. am I going to drop this bomb and destroy millions of innocent civilians' lives and wreck an entire city or two? Or am I going to let Americans storm the home island of Japan and suffer the same fate that they had suffered at the hands of the Japanese in every other island that they had stormed? And the -hmm. the Japanese to that point had proven that they would not surrender even when death was assured and victory was completely hopeless. If there were 10 people left on that island, those 10 people were going to fight to the death. And so how much more so was that going to be when they attacked the home island? And so you have millions of people dying on one side and millions of people dying on the other side. And what's the right choice? Well, and to be honest, another example that I was thinking of that's a little bit more contemporary, but that I was thinking of while you were talking was President Bush's decision to evade, invade Iraq after 9-11 that he has gotten a lot of flack for. And I don't pretend to know whether it was the best decision or not the best decision, whether he had the right eat, whatever. But I am reminded that was a messy couple of months. Right. And a lot was going on. And he was in the chair and I was not. Yeah. And I may want to just acknowledge the fact that I doubt he was sitting there thinking, hmm, yes, let's get some Americans killed in a fruitless war. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? And I think Maya Angelou has a great saying about this. Like, you do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, you do better. And that's just, Mm -hmm. that's the only thing we can do is work with the information we have in the moment, make the best decision we can. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. Like I can see in hindsight that there was a lot of errors made at that time. But mm-hmm. were, were I in the chair, would I have made similar or different errors? Like I, it's just, it's hard to know exactly what I would have done if I had the same facts or assumed facts that he had, what would I have done? And this is another thing. I don't know if this has struck you when you were watching the West Wing. The fact that the president ultimately has frequently minutes to make a decision, Hmm. or if he has, let's say, an hour or two hours to make a decision, he often has six other things he has to do in that hour. So he's got to compartmentalize and then make a decision that is the best decision he can in a shockingly fast time frame. Yes. Yes. In the episodes I was watching last night, they were worried about international terrorism. All of a sudden, there's this airplane that is not responding on radio, and they happen to be within 100 miles of a nuclear power plant. And so they've scrambled the jets, and he's faced with, do you give the order to blow up this plane right now or not? And he's like, how come we can't reach them? Have we tried all these channels? What do we need to do? How long do I have to give this order? And he's like, well, they're 70 miles away. You need to give the order within the next 10 minutes. But right now they're over water and later they're going to be over land. And so that's what you have to work with. And, you know, he's just an immediate sort of like, do I blow this plane out of the sky or not? And you have to decide right now. And ultimately they get in radio contact with this plane and everybody takes a sigh of relief and he walks out of the situation room just frazzled. Like, I can't imagine that kind of 
decision making and the immediacy of it. Absolutely. And knowing that he's not going from that to, you know, when I have a rough moment, you know, even in your job, you've talked about this a little bit. You can have a horrible moment in your job. And if you need to step off the floor, you can most of the time step off the floor for a minute to recoup, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The president never gets to step off the floor. Right. Right. He walks out of that situation room and the next thing he's doing is just as life threatening, just in a different arena. Now he has to think about a life threatening uh, situation that's going to ruin jobs in the commerce area or whatever, you know, and then he has to walk away from that and deal with transportation and. Well, yeah, or not. And I think this is the other thing that they do a good job of describing in the show is he might have the world's concerns on his plate, right? He might be thinking mm -hmm. about an international terrorist situation and the fact that our army is being mobilized to deal with that threat. And then he has to go to some gala and just mm -hmm. shake hands and smile and put on a face and everything's well. When he in the back of his mind, and sometimes even his staff is off in the wings you know, delivering pieces of paper and delivering information or pulling him aside to give him an update on this pressing international crisis that nobody knows about but him. And he's just smiling for the crowd and attending the gala. It's just, wow, how hard would that be? No kidding. I mean, even the layers underneath him, like for 90% of the show, CJ Craig is the press secretary. Mm -hmm. She is by far and away the most brilliant person on the show, third to Bartlett and Leo McGarry. But of the team, she is clearly the smart one, even though they're all smart. Yeah. But the number of times he is just walking into the briefing room to brief the press and she's told about 16 different issues and she has to like get all the facts right about all of the things and have like this like savoir faire with the press corps <laughs> right and for the sake of the country she can't let anybody know you know but again coming back to the idea of goodwill right that kind of the angels of our better natures mm. uh, i remember this one moment where she starts to leak she's so upset and she had to just do this fake it out thing and she starts to leak a story that she's upset about to one of the press and he just stops her and says no I'm not taking this. You need to stop talking. Mm. And she's like, what are you talking about? This is going to be a huge story. And she says, no, it's not. Because 30 minutes from now, you're going to remember who you are and what you care about. And if I write this story, you are never going to forgive me. And I'm not sure you'll forgive yourself. And I'm not going to do that. I know. Those are those moments in the show where that moral earnestness shows up from a variety of characters. Mm-hmm. And I just yes. love it. I love it. I want this to be the world we live in. Yeah. If I theologically analyze this, I think that it is the difference between a world of sinners and a world of good people who happen to sin sometimes. Mm. I think we believe in total depravity. Whatever that may or may not mean, go look at previous episodes and you can find out definitively <laughs> what that means. Oh, yes. But, we, we are very definitive on this show. Yeah. 
But this is a show that believes that people are good even when they make mistakes or even happen to sin. But fundamentally, there's a goodness. And I think as conservative evangelicals, sometimes we are too quick to write off the fact that there is a kernel of goodness, no matter how broken or distorted, at the center of each person, because that's the image of God in them. Yes. And I am appreciative of the reminder. Yes. I love that you bring it back to the Imago Dei and its balance with total depravity, because my definition of total depravity is not that we are 100% depraved, because I believe the image of God still resides in each of us, but that every single facet of us has an element of depravity. There is no part of our lives that depravity has not touched. And so- Yes, exactly. That to me is total depravity. And so, yes, this kernel of goodness that you're talking about still dwells in every single human, even if every single aspect has been touched by depravity. And so we have to balance that and we have to recognize that oftentimes people are just doing the best they can with what they have. And they're doing the best they can until they know better. And once they know better, they'll do better. Exactly. Well, I am glad that we have had an opportunity to talk about this because I absolutely adore the show. I think it's brilliant. I think it is a delightful and uplifting experience. Before we end, I do also have to say it is also one of the funniest things I have ever watched. (laughs) Uh, I laugh out loud so often and... Aaron Sorkin, the original writer, actually was interviewed at one point, and he said that it needs to be thought of as a comedy dealing with serious things. Mm. Yep. It was not accidental that particularly in the first half of the show where Sorkin is the main writer, there is a significant amount of humor. As a matter of fact, this is very interesting Do you know what the last episode Sorkin wrote was? Yeah, the last where Bartlett actually invokes the 25th Amendment, uh, the end of season Mm -hmm. four. He writes himself out by writing Bartlett out. And there is some neat symbolism to that. Yeah. But yeah, I love it. But I do want to take a moment and turn to our audience here and to both of you who are actually listening to this episode (laughs) right now. Um, I would love to know what are some good pieces of entertainment that are genuinely uplifting. I would love to hear that from you. And even though this has been a silly conversation on some level, if there are things about it that you find interesting, I would encourage you to take the opportunity to share this with a friend and let it spark a conversation about entertainment. Whether it's about this show or some other show, we would love that because, as we've often said, we are all about friendship, and that is kind of the lens through which we view everything. And as such, I think entertainment and what do we enjoy is a really important part of that conversation. It's not all serious, not all the time. Yeah, please, absolutely. Share this episode. Have a great conversation with a friend. And hey, if you share this episode... We're up to three listeners, so thanks. Ooh. So 
Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking a lot about uh, the West Wing and how much I enjoy it. But you saw it years ago, so I'm curious, what else have you been thinking about? Yeah, uh, not really the West Wing too much, although in preparation for this episode, I did watch a number of episodes of the West Wing and uh, may or may not have gotten a lot of sleep last night as a result. But <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yes, no, I have one final thought I want to share from The Mission of God by Christopher J.H. Wright. And he was talking about how sometimes we as evangelical Christians think that 100% of the solution is just to share the gospel. And if we can get people saved and baptized, that will solve the social ills that we all experience. And he brought up the situation of Rwanda as evidence against that way of thinking. Because Rwanda, when it broke out into civil war and all of the atrocities that happened in that country, at the time that civil war broke out, 90% of the population identified as Christian. There was a, a quote that was said of Rwanda at that time that I think holds true today. The blood of tribalism is greater than the waters of baptism. And I think what he was trying to say is we have to address both the spiritual and the social dynamics at the same time. Mm. And we have to show how the spiritual and the social interact in order to truly redeem not just a soul, but a society. And the fact that that work had not been completed in Rwanda shows how even being baptized believers, we can get into our nest of tribalism mm -hmm. and fight to the death against the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that playing out in our political sphere in the United States today. And it's something that I really appreciate about everything we talked about with uh, Miroslav Volf and mm -hmm. exclusion and embrace. We have to allow the gospel to inform our social sphere as much as our spiritual sphere. Man, that's good. We need a deeply nuanced, profoundly holistic view of the world, don't we? Yes. And we need that nuance to impact our mission mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. We cannot limit our mission to just getting people saved and getting people dunked, and that's it. This has to take root in our lives. It has to take root in our societies. We have to nurture all aspects of what it means to be human as an act of mission, because that is the mission that God is on as the steward of his creation. Mm. So uh, anyway. I think that's great. Well, and the piece of that, that rings true pastorally for me more than anything is that when we think about discipleship, it needs to be very broad. Coming back to this idea of Imago Dei, discipleship is any activity that helps a person live out the image of God in them. Mm. And that means if I'm helping a person after they get dunked, develop the skills to get a job, that's discipleship. If I'm helping a person get an education, that's discipleship. If I'm helping a community develop 
sustainable practices, that's discipleship. Yep. It takes all aspects. Mm-hmm. That's so good. So what about you? What are you thinking about? Man, I have been uh, reading quite a bit lately, but the book that I've been enjoying the most, perhaps, has been a book by Stephen Covey, the son of the famous Stephen Covey who wrote Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person. His son, Stephen, is now the CEO of the organization that Stephen Covey started. His son, also named Stephen Covey, just for confusion's sake, (laughs) who has, by the way, in an illustration, he talked about his son named Stephen. So that means that guy's name is Stephen. It's time to start using different names, people. (laughs) But he wrote this phenomenal book on crust. And first of all, I love the fact that as he has grown up under one of the greatest leadership experts in the world and thought through what is the unique contribution to organizational excellence? What is the one topic that needs to be addressed when we're talking about leaders? His response is trust. We cannot lead if we don't trust. And the people who follow us will not follow if they don't trust us. And he breaks down trust really effectively into actionable choices and habits we can cultivate in our lives. And this is the thing I love, is that his basic argument in the book is that trust isn't just an ethereal, vague commodity that you may or may not have. If you do have trust, it's because of specific habits that you have in your life. If you don't have trust with people, it's because of specific habits that you don't have in your life. And you can change it. Hmm. And I think that's really powerful. I, I would imagine every person that listens to this can think of a leader that they've followed they didn't trust, even if they couldn't say why. And I would bet every one of us has can tell stories about leaders we have trusted. And Essentially, he talks about four basic key elements of trust, and I love this. He talks about the fact that trust is a combination of having integrity, you are what you say you are, intent, you do what you're going to do for the reasons that you say you're going to do it, capability, you have the ability to accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish, and then finally results you actually do what you say you're going to do. And I just appreciated that breakdown of the word trust. Integrity, intent, capability, and results. And his argument is that if you're missing any of the four of those, you are eroding trust. That's so good. I am applying that to situations at work and realizing the truth of what he's talking about. Boy, that's good. Isn't that powerful? And there is something to be said for the fact that I had to go to a business book to look at trust rather than a theology book. And I'm sure that's a different conversation, but it does say something. Hmm. But uh, yeah, that's what I've been thinking about. So are you ready for the which Josh question? Oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. 
All right. Ladies and gentlemen, which Josh always reminds his kids which of them is his favorite? (laughs) That's totally me. But it's not what you think. I actually don't have a favorite child, but... You know, kids are kids, and my kids are particularly snarky and just try to push the envelope. And they are constantly asking me, oh, yeah, who's your favorite? Oh, I bet so-and-so is your favorite. I bet so-and-so. And so I devised a system for handling this question many years ago that I just absolutely love. My favorite child is whichever of them is bringing me coffee. <laughs> And it works out great because then they like fall all over themselves to like be the favorite. And like, I always just get a cup of coffee out of it and it's great. So I'll, you know, be enjoying the cup of coffee and I'll be like, yeah, right now, so-and-so is my favorite. And then, you know, the next day somebody else will bring me coffee and I'm like, yep, you're my favorite. Everybody has an opportunity to be my favorite in that moment. That's wonderful. It's You know, the thing I love about your approach to parenting is that it is not self-serving in any way, shape, or form. And I deeply respect you for that. Yes. No, I'm I'm laying myself on the altar of parenting here. I'm just, whatever's right for my kids. You are a sacrificial man. I I really am. I really am. Mm. And my coffee cup happens to be empty. So we might have to see about that. Well, by the time one of your children hears this episode, which they never will, because I doubt they listen, unless Logan still does. (laughs) But- Uh, no, I think we lost him. Yeah, we lost, we lost both them. of my kids a long time ago. So, But thank you for the two people who are listening right now. That's Yeah, uh, we appreciate we really both appreciate of it. you and the friend you share this episode with. Yeah, that's great. But, yeah, do it over a cup of coffee. Then that could be your best friend. Mm, yes, exactly. Well, are we on for next week? All right, we sure are. I can't wait. All right, I'll talk to you then. All right, bye.